0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life.
1: No purchase necessary. Dw Void prohibited by loss. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the day. I can't help but tell what he's done for me, I lift my soul, gave the victory, set my footsteps to walking right, gave me eyes to see the light, this is the day that the Lord has made, this is the day. I'm exceedingly, exceedingly glad. i lift my I'll lift my eyes. Wings come in my, my, my head. One coming from the Lord. Lord great God, God a mighty that will never fail, Let the heavens rejoice let the earth be glad. Let the hills be born to so let the sea roll back, Let the earth, let the sea, let the wind. Oh, yeah. Let the rain, oh, yeah. let the sun, I oh, yeah. let the moon, oh, yeah. I let the young oh, yeah. and let the old left the church let the church, Rejoge. let the church to be exceedingly glad. This day, this is the day that the Lord has made
2: Good morning from Coolidge, Arizona. We are pleased that you have joined us uh, during this broadcast. For the past two sessions, or two weeks, we have been studying the question of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, so this is part three of that discussion. Um, now I say we're discussing it where we are Testing it according to Scripture, basically, um, and well, just a little review and a little more explanation of why we're doing such a thing. You know, I've not undergone this study simply to be offensive to anyone, or or simply uh, mount that mount once again that hobby horse of religious words uh, just to cause trouble. No. That's a waste of time, and I wouldn't do that. Here's the point, friends. Every teaching and the words that we use in promoting doctrines of the Scriptures to our assemblies in the body of Christ must be able to stand on their own in light of God's Scripture. They must. In other words, what does that mean? That means according to the language they were written in, according to the grammar that goes along with that language, according to the rules of interpretation, the context of the passage, etc., etc., these things must be part of our study. Uh, If we're simply to read the Scriptures in whatever version of the Bible you you might have or prefer whatever, in a cursory method, we might be convinced that somebody, when they teach the Trinity, knows what they're speaking of. Simply because we find the words there within the Scripture, not not the word Trinity, but we we find the words, uh, the Father, the Son, in different references. And the Holy Spirit, but there's more to it than that. We we don't argue the words of the scriptures that are there if they're truly there and they're truly in the original language. And but we need to understand what the context and what everything to do with that passage is all about. <coughs> Excuse me. Now the doctrine of the Trinity, in my estimation. Uh, does not stand the test. And the reason, of course, um, we had a wonderful explanation last week of the, my, my question is, why do we have such a thing? Why do people promote such a doctrine? Well, uh, we had uh, one of our young ladies in the class say that in ancient in history, uh, ancient history, the idea of the mytholo- uh, mythology and the uh, so-called gods of the past, there were always multiples. Uh, the three gods of Egypt. Um, and then there were <laughs> multiples of, of that. And that's very true. And we know that in, in, through in the years of A.D. 300 and A.D. 400, the so-called church was trying to bring people from all walks of life, and this was a very popular aspect to deal with this uh, issue of, of the triune Godhead or however you want to deal with it. But you see, there wasn't any teaching to go along with it other than just a statement. Now, And there's where the problem right, uh, is there. And I'm going to go, I'm going to look at three passages here before we get going on the Nicene Creed because we need to explain what is the Holy Spirit. It's in the Bible, all right? Well, it's it's mentioned, of course, by Jesus uh, and probably in the earliest uh, form outside of just uh, talking about it in a general sense but in John 14:16, now the entire chapter of 14 and, and 15 and 16 and 17, uh, by the way, of, of the Gospel of John, as, as you know from our long study of John, was spoken to the apostles. And a lot of promises were made to them, in particular, that would not have anything to do with us, but we need to know which ones. We need to understand the context of it. <clears throat> So, as Jesus was introducing this thinking to them, uh, we need to see what he said about it. Um, when I was looking at my Bible, it uh, the, the spirit of truth is mentioned, another comforter is mentioned, uh, and in the language. So, let's just read verse, uh, first is verse 16. Jesus speaking, speaking to the, to the apostles here. <clears throat> he says, I will beg the Father or pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may be with you forever. Now, we've got some issues there on our language, but the forever uh, is, of course, he will be with you until the end of the completion of the age. That's the promise that we find in other passages. Uh, But as long as their ministry, uh, they would have this. Okay. Um, So let's look at this first. Another comforter. The Greek word there for another comforter is the word paracletes. Um, And that means... As far as the definition of this word, and from the Greek, one who come, uh, who comes forward on behalf of, and representative of another. Now that's the concept, right? Because Jesus had already been telling them that He is going away. That's the context. More of the context. But he is sending that another comforter he shall give you. That is, God shall give you. That will be with you. All right? But that's the definition. Does the definition say another God will be sent to you? Well, we would have to believe that if we said we stood on the Trinity. Jesus doesn't call himself God, and he certainly doesn't call the the Periclete's God. <clears throat> but one thing we know from the word, um, the, the word spirit, it does mean the breath of God, the breath effect of God. Now the key the key verses here, friends, in this passage are found in verse 17 and 18. <coughs> And then verse 20. Let's look at them too. The Spirit of truth, which of course is in reference to the Comforter, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him nor know him, but you know him, for he abides with you and shall be in you. Now let's look at this verse carefully. Now we see the pronoun him, so we assume a masculine gender of the spirit, right? No, that's not the uh, that's not how the scripture reads. It's in reference to, in reference to, uh, the spirit. So the gender of it is neuter. The him is neuter. Now, if you didn't know that you would assume that it was masculine, wouldn't you? Of course you would. Him and her and things of that sort. It's neuter in general. Why? Because it refers back to the spirit of truth. That's very important. And of course, the you... Uh, the fact that uh, he abides with you, he is actually he has been beside you. That would give me an indication that we're speaking of of Christ Himself, and the Comforter being another that represents Him in His essence. Yes, so he has been with you, or abide has been abiding with you beside you and he shall be by the way future tense he shall be in you
0: now are, are we sure that's in in you i forget how that works grammatically is uh, because I, I i do recall in human being yeah. um, uh, being among you because the the U is plural, but there is well, a way to write that to where it's in each and every one of the party included.
2: It being plural, like you say, you, we could certainly say uh, among you, and be seen as though we know the the audience is the twelve, right? Yes. Yeah. Or in this case, the eleven, I believe. Um, no, the the twelve at this point. Um, Yes, um, he will be among you. But the the concept is the in is still there. In uh, the plurality of course is obvious because we're talking about the apostles once again.
1: <clears throat>
2: and then at verse eighteen we cap this whole thinking with the statement that Jesus is uh, told them I will not leave you orphans. <clears throat> Now, he is leaving. He is leaving as Jesus of Nazareth, the man, Jesus, from Nazareth, the son of Mary. He will be leaving, but he says, I am coming to you. And the word coming there is not just presence. It it really is Urquimai, I believe. In other words, there's a movement. Christ will be coming to them them, He's not going to leave them orphans. He's coming to them. All this is in reference to the issue of the Spirit coming upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost, fulfillment of the promise that God will send. As he sent Jesus to be born into Israel, he will now send the, the Spirit of truth unto the apostles as the essence of the Lord himself. And that's why the apostles, Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. It all works together, friends, but we have to take it all together, too. And then we look in verse 20, just to expand just a little bit. Same chapter. In that day you shall know, you the apostles shall know, that I uh, am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, friends, there is no third person there. The Father and the Son and the oneness that we find here. So when we speak of the the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit, we're going to find that this is the essence of, of God himself. So to me, 20 is absolutely destroys the, the triune God aspect. Um, now, some may say, well, that, that the Holy Spirit came later. No, not according to the scriptures. Remember, friends, Christianity, salvation came to the apostles of Christ first. And so did the Spirit. And so did the revelation of the mystery of God. And they passed it on to us. See, a lot of this has to do with the whole concept of disregarding the apostles as just some men that lived a long time ago. That tra- that traveled with Jesus. <clears throat> we need to rethink and get our priorities right. Now, let's move on to John's uh, or Jesus' prayer that we find in John seventeen three. Again, we're we're, we're working on scriptures that absolutely uh, make it clear that this idea of the triune God is not a doctrine taught by the apostles, nor is it taught by the Lord himself. Now, Jesus praying in this chapter to his father, who is the audience? The audience is the 12, once again. Um and this, it, it, actually the 11, the 11 at this point, the, the Judas had de, de, uh, departed. I think he may have been departed uh, in verse chapter 14, too. I, I get those mixed up in the, which gospel or what chapter he's gone. But nonetheless, to the apostles. And he says this in his prayer, and this is the life eternal that they should know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now the you there is in reference to, as we'll find, the apostles. He's speaking of His those that are with him and the people that are listening, of course, and, and believing. But the phrase, the only true God, what does it mean? Does that mean... In some way, there's some sort of a mysterious understanding of that passage. It could be three gods. Um, The only true God. That's what Jesus says of the one he's praying to that he addresses as my father. Not only my father, but my God, we find in John chapter 20. Jesus says that the God of heaven, the Father, is his Father and his God. We need to understand that the scriptures do not teach the three gods of equal value, equal power, equal holiness. It's not there, friends. But what is there is the truth. And the truth is far, far more glorious than men's doctrines that are based on political reasons, I think, more than anything else. The only true God um, is, uh, is self-explanatory. Uh, only being uh, meaning, of course, uh, that word means uh, of, of that sort. There is no duplication of it. The only true God is one God. There's only one, only true God. So and Jesus Himself makes Him subject
0: here, being the one sent.
2: That's right. Jesus is always subject and, and defers to His Father, always, every time, without without a doubt. Um, and the Scripture speaks of of Him becoming subject once again to the Father when He turns the kingdom back over to His Father. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's there. but why haven't the Trinitarians found these things? Well they' not're they're not they would rather believe this because this is the, this is how you get along in your denominational um, uh, and, and groups where you're not rocking the boat, so to say. Well this does rock the boat. Uh, and it throws the innocent out into the water, and they can't swim. Now, Matthew 28. Someone just uh, mentioned this this morning to me. And this is an important passage because many people, they know this passage. They remember this. This is the Great Commission, if you will. This is Jesus speaking to his apostles and sending them forth. Uh, Matthew 28, verse uh, 19, I believe. Going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Notice there's an article before each one. Um, And the grammar says this about it. The father, singular, masculine, and it's it's a genitive phrase. The son, singular, masculine, genitive phrase. Once again, the Holy Spirit, singular, neuter. Genitive phrase. By the way, because of this genitive phrase with the Father, the Petrus, these all are uh, of the Father. Isn't the Son the only begotten son, meaning out of the Father? These this genitive phrase is, is rather telling here, isn't it? We, that's why we need to be baptized in in the name, or the uh, the word is an, uh, noma. Uh, it means the very essence and nature, uh, not not just the the, the some sort of a, a name in a certain language. That's not the point. The point is really knowing who the Father is, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes. Because how how.
0: How can we say that God's character, his nomenclature, and the Lord's is not holy? Exactly. And that's I think people get confused in that really easily.
2: We do, but when we hear the Father and the Son, we know who's being spoken of, and the issue of holiness is, is a understanding. But when it comes to the word spirit, we can have many, many different spirit uh, phrases, and is there an evil spirit? There certainly is, but you see the qualification is the, here is, and of the spirit, and that spirit is holy. That's the that's the idea. Now it's neuter because this is not a personage. Now the Trinity teaches us three persons of the Godhead, but the Bible teaches us that's not so. It's that's an untruth. falsehood so let's not dwell on that but can we use our this scripture this scripture is the truth friends this is what the apostles this is how they baptized Uh, because if we go if we go back to the Gospels we find that that to be in Christ one is born out of heaven by the will of God it's his gospel. It's his terms of pardon. That's why all of this fits together. You just can't take this and go with it. You've got to have some more explanation. What does this mean? Baptized? What, well, then we, we know what it means. But we need the fullness of the teaching. And that's where many people have been misled. They don't have the fullness of the teaching. That's what we're trying to do here, <coughs> is to make the teaching as full as we can in the allotted amount of time we have and and our and the number of days we've been granted to, to be with you here. But the goal is to use the oracles of God in their fullness, and that's what the charge is from heaven. So, friends, you know, the denominations and the independent groups of what's called Christendom, always say, somewhere in their statements, the Bible is our only rule and practice. That's a wonderful thing to say. But is it so? Is it truly? Because if it is, they would be discussing these things that we've been just talking about, and I think uh, there's not many that could, they would have to say there seems to be a little problem with the doctrine of the Trinity. But friends, that's nothing new. There's been a problem with the doctrine of the Trinity since the very first time someone uttered the concept and tried to explain it. Someone said, but the scriptures don't teach that. And on it went from there. And we're going to learn about that when we look at the Nicene Creed. makes me, uh,
0: just having having gone through your notes for the General Assembly, the taking heed of how you hear in Luke,
2: Luke 8. That's right, the idea of hearing. What are you hearing, friends, from the scriptures? Now, if we remove the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's what I'm suggesting, but to some that would be, well, you've crushed my Christianity. No, I haven't. If we remove the doctrine of the Trinity from our conversation, we will not leave a hole in the faith once delivered. Now, how do I know that? Because the faith once delivered is the apostolic teachings in the New Testament. If you can find the Trinity there, I'll agree that I've made them an, an error. But you're not going to find it. So there is no hole left in the faith once delivered. And if that is the case, friends, There is also no hole in the kingdom of God. There is no mention of the Trinity concept in heaven. That is abhorrent at the throne of God. That is pagan in its its ideas. Now, I want to read to you a little something from the book that I've been reading. Uh, written by P.R. Lackley. That concerns the tyranny of the Trinity in her understanding, Uh, tyrannical in its nature through the ages, that is. We don't experience that here too much in our day outside of the the, uh, comments that might be made to us that, that we've, lost our way or something of that sort. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, this is just conversation that uh, you need to be able to defend this with scripture. Now, she writes about the decision makers, and this has to do with the Nicene Creed. She's talking about the Nicene Creed that we're going to examine. And she says this, the infamous council of Nicaea in 325 AD was called by the ruling emperor, Constantine, for the purpose of settling the numerous factional um, uh, differences which were causing confusion and friction in the church. The council lasted for 40 days and was attended by approximately 250 to 300 bishops. It was the first established ecumenical council to deal with the schisms which were uh, uh, which were causing much dissension in the growing catholic which means universal mm-hmm. church now one thing i'll point out to you immediately is the idea of the 200 to 300 bishops and we might think, well, all the churches sent uh, uh, one or two of those, their elders in to this council. Is that, is that right? Well, in, the, in, the, in our language, in English, it could, it could have mean that. But friends, I know it doesn't mean that. I know who the bishops were here. These bishops were self-appointed, and they ruled over certain regions uh, of congregations. They call themselves bishops, but that is a word that refers to the elders of the church, the overseers. They usurp the position. We have the New Testament teaches elders for the individual congregations, not over large groups of congregations in large areas. So by, the, by this time, 250 to 300, uh, actually this came into effect Around uh, 90 to 100 A.D., uh, there were indeed bishops, being named bishops, uh, in, in the various regions of the empire, The actually the Roman Empire at this time. Now, these bishops were martyred by the Romans in those days, <laughs> uh, in the early days. <clears throat> but by this time, Christianity had or uh, the concept of Christianity had taken over the Roman Empire. That's why we call it the Roman Catholic Church. So, and I know that because of, if you want to find this out for yourself, you can read uh, books such as the uh, the Church Fathers, the writings of the Church Fathers, the oldest writings, and, and through these, this period of time. And you'll find that these bishops of different regions talking about the different congregations and the the elders and the deacons and and the uh, assembly itself and how they are they are obedient to the bishop that's not new testament christianity so we have a problem right right there the representatives are not truly christian representatives in the nature of and uh, it's okay to have a meeting, I suppose, but not uh, this is this is formalized and made uh, legal by the idea of the bishops being there. If it were if it was truly the elders of the church, it might have been a different thing. Now, <clears throat> let me add to that this a little history lesson. A, sub, uh, a subsequent church council of Constantinople in 381, so some years later, added that the phrase in the Nicene Creed, Jesus was born of the Father before all time. Then in 451 A.D. at the Council of Chalcedon, the famous formula was added that Jesus was true God from a true man and was co-substantiated with the Father according to the Godhead. Okay, now all these things are just men's writings. The self same, co substantial with us according to the manhood before all time, he was begotten of the Father to his Godhead, but in the last days the self same for us, for our salvation was born. Of Mary, the virgin of the bearer of God, as to his manhood. Now, a lot of that is just words <clears throat> that might have meant a lot to them. But unfortunately, this is the conclusion that people came to and the councils came to. So, essentially, formulated in the 4th century, this view speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Historically, this Catholic, that is Roman Catholic, interpretation has been promoted by decree and force. <clears throat> Those who did not so confess were threatened with excommunication from the Catholic Church. And, now the, the word Catholic is misused here. You know, we, we, assume we uh, uh, tie it to a certain group of people, but it means universal church. It, it's the Holy Universal Church of Christ is the Lord's Church. But this is not in reference to that. This is the Roman Catholic Church of this time period. And in the 6th century, the Roman Empire, Justinian, decreed that anyone who did not confess faith in this trinity in the two natures of Christ Jesus would be executed. So this trinity issue is pretty heavyweight, isn't it? Pretty heavyweight. It makes me wonder... How many people want to talk about the Trinity in light of the historical nature of it within the Roman Catholic Church? And I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church because none of those folks are here today. And they wouldn't, I don't believe anyone would be willing to do such a thing right now, at least not vocally. That's why this is an important thing for us to deal with. Know the history. Know know God's word, the oracles of God, and know the history of the so-called doctrines of men. Jesus dealt with the doctrines of men all during his sojourn. Um, And, you know, many of the doctrines of the the Jewish people and the teachings were were true and adequate and, and proper. But when they put their teachings on the same level, before it's over, their teachings become primary and the doctrines of the scripture and the word of God itself become secondary. Now we find, uh, we find that, that belief to have pretty much taken over the whole Christendom world, that the doctrines of the church, as they call it, and they're talking about their organizations, Are binding, but one of our questions is: Is the the, are these creeds uh, are they binding upon us, the followers of Christ, as the apostles' doctrine is? That's the question that we're trying to answer here. We have the Nicene Creed before us here. I don't know if you can anybody can get the Nicene Creed from the internet and print it off. They got the Nicene Creed, you've got the Apostles' Creed, which came quite a bit later. That was, by the way, not written by the Apostles and certainly was not their creed. But nonetheless, there it is. And then there's the uh, Anathesian Creed, which is supposedly uh, more of the Apostles' teaching. But if you read it, you'll find that the Apostles never wrote anything of the sort. So, the Nicene Creed, as we know, uh, this came forth from the council, a 40-day session in Nicaea, in the city of Nicaea, uh, that is still in existence, and I believe they've even discovered the building that they had this meeting in. Uh, I was looking in the archaeology book uh, concerning that, but well, it, it's put out in like sections, and we can look at it as such. And there's a few things within this that are purely uh, unscriptural and they have no support in scripture, but many do have a scriptural idea, and that's what I want to deal with. And and some of them we'll find, uh, a a couple of them here, I'll, I'll take a scripture and we'll read the scripture after we read what it says in the Creed to show that, the creed is completely contrary to the word. So, and if we look at this creed on the surface, I get the idea that many people were thought that this was a wonderful thing and it brought honor to God. It brought honor to his son and it brought honor to, even though not spoken of in, in the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit, um, and I can just say that, but, but friends, if it's going to be um, something binding upon the church, it has to be backed up with scripture. Now I'll read the first little phrase: "I believe in one God, the Father Almighty." Wow. I you know, I would say amen to that. Maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Can we find any falsehood in those statements? Matter of fact, John seventeen three. John seventeen three. Then I think we just we might have read it here. Uh, Let's read it again. And this is life eternal that they should know thee the only true god and jesus christ whom has whom thou hast sent he is the father almighty the only true god the singular uh, as the greek writings makes clear the singleness of god the father he is the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And we find many Trinitarians falling into the the trap of the English versions of the Bible and giving the creation of the world and all to the Son of God, the second personage of the Trinity, as they call him. That's not what the Scripture teaches. God is the creator, and he created all things through his Son. That's what it will, we'll read later on. Now, if you want to talk to God about what He mean, meant by through His Son, then, then we should do so. We need to find out what it means. But let's not be giving uh, job descriptions to the God of heaven and His Son unless we know the full impact of what we're saying. <clears throat> the second section. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. That's Acts 2.36. Now, this verse is not used too often, but it should be used a whole lot more because this is a revelation from God to the apostles through the mind of Christ. The apostle Peter said this in the first sermon ever preached concerning the gospel. And Peter says this to the Jews Let the whole house of Israel, therefore, know assuredly that God has made him, this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And we know about the oneness of the Lord, don't we? The oneness of the faith, the oneness of baptism. And the oneness of God, but He, God, made Him both Lord and Christ. Does that sound like the Trinitarian formula, or more to the point, the uh, the Anathesian Creed, or the even the Apostles' Creed that try to define things uh, numerically? No. But this is the truth of God's word here concerning who the Father is and who the Son is. Now, before you think that Jesus has been re- resorted to some sort of menial, uh, a menial uh, position, maybe you ought to consider what Lord and Christ really means. Lord means master. It means owner. It means one that has the power of life and death in your life. And everyone else's. And Christ, the meaning your Redeemer, your Savior. Your advocate to God. It is through this Lord, Him being Christ, that we have salvation. Now let's look at the next phrase. After it says, I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. The only begotten Son of God we know that from John 3:16 don't we? That's what it says. that's what Jesus says of himself right He is the only begotten. he is the heir of all things. what the father is what the father has is his. Can we understand that? Sometimes our our governments in different countries around the world don't understand that if the father bequests things to his son, they should have nothing to say about it. But unfortunately, they do, because we're not respecting the, this this uh, formula here or understanding it. But John 3:16 makes it clear the only begotten one, meaning out of the only one out of the Father. Now you remember how. God created Adam, how he made him from the dust of the earth and and breathed life into his nostrils. He wasn't the the begotten of God. He was created by God. You see a difference there? There's a considerable difference. Now we come to the phrase that was added in A.D. 381 to the writing of A.D. uh, 325 born of the father before all ages that's John 175 by the way these I really hope that you write these verses down because they we have a hard time sometimes remembering these things but these are the clarification to the creeds and to the doctrines of men and the, 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 once again we're in the prayer of Jesus to his father and now glorify thou father along with thyself with the glory which I had along with thee before the world was. And the world there being the word the cosmo, meaning the, the, uh, the things of creation, the elements of creation. Before there was that sort of element in, in all the wonders of creation, the Son of God had glory with his Father. Now, I, may, I disagree holding to this verse. Uh, I would disagree with some folks that, that believe that there was not a son of God before the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Well, I, how can we believe that when we read such a thing as this? Now, some would say, well, maybe this is just the God had the thought of his son. Uh, but how could he glorify his thought? It doesn't say that. Jesus is making it clear. He had some sort of a understanding before the world was of this glorification that he shared with his father.
0: You just, you just mentioned it a moment ago. It, creation was, was made through the Lord. That's right. This the 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 sin issue was resolved through that creation with the Lord in mind. Uh, uh, That's God, right. God God doesn't make weak
2: plans. He doesn't he's not a poor planner. That's right. That's exactly right. And we need to understand that. So what we have is a very strong passage here and and, and we got to think about that like Alex just said uh, from the Gospel of John, I think the very first verse, verse 1 through 3 actually, we find that Jesus, uh, the creation was made through the Son. So obviously he was there before the creation, right? Because then without him not one thing received being which was received being. We have it, friends, right there in front of us. All right. Now, the next two phrases in this uh, this creed, of course, we find no scriptural support for, so we don't have to deal with it, except that, unfortunately, this is what people believe because it's in this creed. It says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Well, there's no scriptural support for that that thinking. We do know... As we're going to find in the next the next line of this creed about the true nature uh, between the Father and the Son here. Uh, these are assumptions, God from God. Um, and and what does the word mean? Um, we'd have to analyze that. If there's one God, we can't have two in the same sentence, can we? So we're dealing with a, a real problem here, and that's why there, there's no scripture for it. And these things were added at a later date. <clears throat> and they would have been argued <laughs> in 325, certainly. Now, the next phrase, begotten, not made. Well, I think that's, that, that's another good good thought. We, we can't say that Jesus was made because the scripture doesn't say he was made. Except, how is, what was Jesus made? He was made both Lord and Christ. That's what God made him. Now, that, that these are the workings of God. But before that, he was the only begotten of God. Not made. Co-substantial with the Father. That word means, I looked it up in an old, old dictionary, not... Uh, uh, not uh, it's a Webster's dictionary, but it's the brother of the famous Webster. Uh, but he's got a very good dictionary that defines all of our English words in the Greek uh, and the even French and Latin, so that we get a full understanding. And what this word means is this: it has it means the same nature and purpose is what that means. Well, Jesus makes that very clear in the Scripture himself concerning himself and the Father. In in the context of the passage, Jesus says about how he's in agreement with the Father, he says the Father and I are one in nature and purpose. That's what it means. Um, so we see m- more of a close relationship than a separate Godhead. Through him all things were made. We just read that. John 1.3 Through Christ all things were made. For us men and for our salvation. True. He is our redeemer, right? He came down from heaven. Now let's read that passage. Philippians 2. By the way, that same nature and purpose as the Father, if you're writing these down, put Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Um, That's, or we've read many times that passage. The exactness of who Christ is, the exact representation of his Father. And that's the the understanding that we have from the Bible. Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11 says this. and this is concerning Jesus, the apostles' writing concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the the Christ, who, subsisting in the form of God, did not esteem it an object of repine to be on an equality, equality with God, but emptied himself, taking a bondsman form, now, verse 6 is talking about the Son of God before before the birth that we find, when, the, when he was sent, right? We're speaking about an issue that, 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 was, um, that was present in the heavenlies that we have defined here, and we can make of it what we will. Um, the relationship between the Father and the Son. We know it's, it's one that the son defers to the father. He always has in everything he ever said to us, the people, through Jesus of Nazareth. But emptied himself, taking a bondsman's form, that means a servant, taking his place in the likeness of men, and having been found in figure as a man, humbled himself, being obedient even unto death, and that the death of the cross. Wherefore, also God highly exalted him. That's what we read in Acts Acts 3, verse 36. And granted him a name, that which is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of the heavenly and earthly and infernal beings, those below is, as it means. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father in glory. And that we find occurring in Revelation uh, amongst those, the beings at that time. So um, this is a, a very good description of the relationship I believe and it certainly has the concept of that God uh, if we go back to verse uh, seven uh, but emptied himself that means the he left his uh, that sort of relationship uh, that sort of um, concept that 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 he and, and the Father knew, and he left that behind because that couldn't have possibly been uh, in the likeness of men.
0: Made himself lo- lower
2: than the angels. Right, he made himself lower than the angels, the heavenly creatures, yes. so to speak. And yet, all of those heavenly creatures worship. The Lord himself that's Hebrews chapter 1 that's uh,
0: Jesus Christ while on earth was a man right he wasn't a
2: man before he came and he wasn't a man after no the likeness of men and having been found in a figure as a man by the way if you look up the word man you'll find that it is it is the the word for uh, the Greek word for the male gender a human being, which is necessary for him to be a high priest and us to have
0: any kind of access to God in the first place.
2: Because, friends, how is it that you can kill God on the cross? Yeah. But no, he was a man, he was he humbled himself. As we know, he is the lamb that cried not. He did not defend himself, he spoke truth. Even to Pilate, who had the authority of life and death over him in the flesh. But he even told Pilate that you would have nothing, no authority over me if it hadn't been given to you from my Father above. As simple as that, friends. I'm sure Pilate really worried about that phrase. Nonetheless, uh, what happened happened, and that was the redeeming nature of the ministry of Christ. The death, death on the cross. And that is not an attribute of God, dying on a cross. And we can't confuse it. That belongs to it. All right. Now, we're out of time here today, friends. And we will pick up um, with, the, uh, with the next phrase that I'm going to put a check mark here we'll start with. That phrase is uh, written in the creed that says, "And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary," there's a lot of problems in the thinking there. Um, and yet, there's a lot of truth in the statement, but it's been it's written improperly, to say the least. And became a man, and that's very true. So we will start there in our examination. Um, if you haven't, if you do not have that that creed, I would print out the Nicene Creed. The apostles Creed and um, even the the other one that's known, the Anthesian Creed, which is refers to the authority of the apostles in a sense. Although they are not have anything to do with these creeds at all. So it's a usurping of the apostolic ministry that there is no reason for. With that, I will leave you today praying that uh, These things have been useful to you in your work, and that you find your way through this lesson and be strengthened by it and uh, and stronger by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?